God Conversations with Tanya Harris. So, let me ask you that question. What does God tell me? <laughs> well, you know, thunder, lightning. <laughs> Mother Teresa, someone asked her, when did God speak to you? And she said, whenever he wants. So essentially, the, the Bible is a, a collection of God Conversations, if you like. I had a vision of a car accident, and I'm sitting on the couch thinking, why have I just seen this? How could I know if God was speaking to me? How could I know that that or that thought was actually just me thinking about, oh, I just had some bad pizza. Jesus said we'd recognise his voice. It was never meant to be a one-way conversation. Have you ever had a friend who does all the talking and doesn't let you get a word in? Relationships are meaningless without two-way communication. To get to know someone, you need to talk to them and then listen as they talk back. And it's exactly the same dynamic with God. That's why on the podcast today, we're talking about prayer. How do we get better at talking to God? Hi, and welcome to episode 52 of the God Conversations podcast. My name is Tanya Harris, and I'm a pastor, speaker, and founder of this ministry that aims to equip you to recognize and respond to God's voice. Well, it's great to have you on the show today. And normally at God Conversations, we're talking about listening to God. But this time we're talking about the other side of the conversation, our side of the conversation. How do I get better at prayer? And I'm really excited to share some of the thoughts with you today. We're going to talk about prayer in the context of relationship. You know, the nature of our relationship with God and the understandings that we have actually determine the types of prayer that we pray. So, for example, if you see him as a loving parent, it will affect how you pray. If you see him as the sovereign ruler or a best friend, all these images are going to impact your prayer life. We're also going to look at the outcomes of prayer and what it does to reveal God, how it reveals us and how it changes the world. When Jesus was asked by his disciples how to pray, he gave them a model to work from. We call it the Lord's Prayer, but really it's the people's prayer. It's our prayer, the prayer that we're all called to pray. So I know you're going to enjoy the podcast today and I'm so excited to have you on board. It's a really fun time in the life of God Conversations at the moment. I've just come off the back of Christmas and New Year. We've been strategizing about the future and I'm about to head into a, a really busy travel season. So if you see me on my travels, I'm off to the US next week and I think the Philippines after that and then over to Europe, going to Estonia, which I'm really excited about. It's part of the world I've never been to before. So if you're a big fan of God Conversations, please come up and say hi. Let us know what's helpful in the ministry and how we can continue to serve you. We're believing for you to experience a two-way conversation with the God of the universe, that you'd be able to hear his voice and you'd be able to engage in talking to him as well. I trust that you enjoy the podcast today. Have you ever had a friend who does all the talking and doesn't allow you to get a word in? Relationships are meaningless without communication. To get to know someone, you need to talk to them and then listen as they talk back. And it's the same dynamic with God. That's why we're talking this week about prayer on God Conversations. When Jesus was asked by his disciples how to pray, he gave them a model to work from. We call it the Lord's Prayer, but really it's the people's prayer, the prayer we're all called to pray. 
Well, what have your experiences with prayer been like? In my childhood, I would visit my friend's place and we would always say grace before meals. (laughs) My childhood friend prayed the prayer her dad taught her and it took me years to work out what she was saying. For what for out about to receive make us truly thankful. Amen, she would say. When I finally worked out what it meant, for what we are about to receive, make us truly thankful, I thought it was a little odd to ask God to make us thankful. Like, couldn't I make myself thankful? And then in the church I grew up in, prayer was a very solemn experience. Heads were bowed, everybody was crouched over, and it was very, very quiet. There were plenty of awkward silences. And people would often speak with a kind of a King James English. When I moved churches at 21, it was completely different. Actually, it was a bit of a shock to the system. In my new church, prayer was loud. People would shout and there'd be like waves of noise building to a crescendo, more like what you'd experience at a football match. Uh, Instead of sitting down with our heads hunched over, we stood up and hands were raised high in the air. People would often pray all at the same time and they were so enthusiastic and passionate. I actually found it a little intimidating, both because they were so expressive emotionally and because they prayed for so long. At times I found it hard to get into it because I just wasn't used to it. And then a few years ago, I had another experience with prayer. I visited a monastery in Europe and it was like stepping back a thousand years in time. Prayer took place at set meetings five times a day, with the first beginning at 4am. Now, I admit we didn't go to all of them and we certainly didn't go to that one. It was a Benedictine monastery, so all the prayers were spoken or sung in Latin using Gregorian chants. I couldn't really understand what they were saying and I wondered if they got bored repeating themselves day after day, week after week. I wonder what your experience of prayer has been like. What is prayer anyway? We often think that prayer is asking God for things, but it's so much broader and deeper than that. Essentially, prayer is communication between us and God, us speaking to Him and Him speaking back. It's the substance of a relationship because you can't really have relationship without two-way communication, can you? So at its core, prayer is all about relationship with God. That means that the way you view your relationship with God will impact your idea of prayer. So to understand prayer, we really need to ask, well, what kind of relationship do I have with God? That's not an easy question to answer, is it? How do you describe your relationship with God, with an invisible deity? I think that's part of the reason why the scriptures use a lot of metaphors for this. They're a tangible way to describe how we relate to a God who is unseen. For example, there's the imagery of a bride and a groom. We're the bride and God is like the groom. Or God is the king and we are his servants. God is the parent and we're his children. Or God is the shepherd and we're his sheep. There's just some of them. Each type of relationship will see prayer in a different way. It will shape our conversation with God. So think about it. The metaphor of a bride and groom Prayer will more likely to be intimate, full of love and adoration with elements of surrender and self-sacrifice. It it may even be emotional with lots of feelings attached to it. Or what about the metaphor of servant to a king or a lord? 
In prayer, there'll be a recognition of lordship and authority of bowing down so that when that God speaks, instructions, commands and submission will be part of the conversation. Then there's the metaphor of parent to child. And here there'll be plenty of requests for help and provision. God, help me out here. I need a house to live in. I need a job to go to. I need a good church, God. Provide for me. This type of relationship also comes into play when things go wrong, doesn't it? When things are out of control, we look to God like a parent to help us out. Well, then there's the metaphor of the shepherd and the sheep. And this image is important when we're looking for guidance, when we're saying, Lord, lead me, shepherd me, show me the way to green pastures and still waters. Well, what about this metaphor, one of co-laborers? Prayer looks like praying for God's kingdom to come and working to bring it about. God, what can I do to exercise your plan on the earth? How can I pray to affect the world in which I live? Finally, there's the imagery of friendship. And here we're going to see openness and vulnerability. There'll be a willingness to share both on the part of God and on us as his people. There'll be a desire to know, well, God, what is on your heart? What are your thoughts? And let's walk this journey together and share it. So what does prayer look like to you? What metaphor of relationship do you relate best to? Because the answer to that question will probably align to how you view prayer. Each aspect of these relationships are important. They're like facets of a diamond all playing their part. At sometimes one aspect of that relationship becomes more important than another. Sometimes we need a parent. Other times we need a Lord. But at the same time, it's important to understand that all of these angles make up what prayer looks like. A well-rounded relationship with God involves all of them. And the fullest type of relationship is likely to include all of those different facets. Well, to understand this, we're going to take a closer look at the Lord's Prayer and pull it apart a bit in order to understand it. The prayer is not so much about knowing a formula, follow these three steps, repeat this mantra, but rather to get an idea of what our prayers should include and what they should look like. The first part of the prayer starts like this, Our Father. We've said that prayer is really the substance of a relationship, and this relationship uses the metaphor of a father and child. So we should come to God like a child, understanding that he is our heavenly father, a father who's loving, caring, a father who provides and who's always there no matter what. It's a beautiful metaphor when it works. The problem, of course, with using father imagery as a starting point for God is that we usually overlay our own idea of father onto God. So it's great if you've had a good dad, but not so great if you haven't. If your father's been more like a policeman who has had a giant list of rules to keep reminding you about, it's not going to really work as a way of coming to God. Or if he was more like a Santa Claus who just popped up periodically and gave you gifts to keep you happy and quiet, that's not going to really fit either. Or if your father was more like a disinterested grandparent, present but not really engaged, it's going to be much harder to pray our father. For me, my father had a very high level of performance orientation, as my counsellor said. I'd feel God's love if I received an A on a school essay, but not if I received a B. So I worked hard trying to be the best I could to earn my dad's love, sometimes successfully and sometimes not. 
And God had to show me that he's not that kind of parent, that even when I fail, he's not angry with me. And it was through walking in relationship with him, through hearing his voice speak, that I began to understand the nature of our true heavenly father. That's what prayer does. It reveals who God is. We may start with a distorted idea of God as Father, but as we get to know Him, as we hear Him speaking, our idea of what our heavenly parent is like will change. We'll begin to realise that He's the perfect Father and He doesn't have the shortcomings of our earthly fathers, no matter how good they were. The Holy Spirit will show us that our Father loves us perfectly and fully. Yeah, He wants to give us good gifts, but only when they're good for us. So if we extend the analogy further, that means when we pray, when we come to God, we should come like a child, open, expectant, not withholding affection, but running into his arms like a child. That's how we start in prayer. The next part of the prayer says this, Our Father who is in heaven. God is close and loving and approachable like a father. But he's also all-powerful and transcendent. He's spirit. He rides the heavens. He is to be revered for his greatness. This is the God who created and who sustains the heavens just by his word, the one who's able to perform miracles. The Lord's Prayer at this point continues to reveal who God is, and praying to him like this will help to reveal more of his greatness. I remember a friend of mine, she was in church praying and she'd had multiple problems with her back as a result of a severe car accident. And when she was praying, she saw a vision of herself running and chasing her son. And at the time, her her son was only a baby, he couldn't walk. And interestingly, they were both wearing summer clothes. So the story goes, time passed. And probably about a year or so later, my friend found herself in that scene. And in that moment, her back was miraculously healed. And it happened in the summer when her son could run around. See, this God who is in heaven is a supernatural God. He's able to do miracles. And when we pray, this line of the prayer reminds us who we're praying to. The last part of this paragraph says this, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Oh, holy is your name. It calls us to worship. Hallowed is the old-fashioned word. It means to make holy, to set apart. We're saying, your name is great, Lord. Your name, your reputation, who you are is holy. It's the response of worship. Now, I don't know about you, But I've often wondered why Jesus calls us to worship God. Is he egotistical? Does he have an insecurity complex where his people have to go around telling him how great he is? Why are we told to say, holy is your name? Think about it in relational terms. If we love someone, we like to compliment them, don't we? We remind ourselves of the person we love, their good traits, and this helps us to keep the relationship in perspective, to help us to stay thankful. I I think this is like with God, it's a similar kind of dynamic. We're reminding ourselves of who he is. It's a way of maintaining a healthy relationship with him, a relationship of thankfulness, of appreciation, where we realise what he's done for us and what he promises to continue to do. You may have heard it said, we need worship far more than God does. How do we pray? We start by recognising who God 
is, our Father, the one who draws near, who comes close, who calls us as his children. He's the God who is in heaven, the transcendent and the holy and the all-powerful one who's worthy of worship. We start by reminding ourselves of the beauty and wonder of being in relationship with him. The people's prayer, the Lord's prayer, reveals who God is. Have you ever heard one of those stories about someone who thought they heard from God, but they actually didn't? Then there's all the damage and fallout that goes with it. We know that God speaks, but how do we know it's His voice we're hearing and not something we made up ourselves? The good news is that Jesus promised His people we'd be able to know His voice and follow it. Just like the Bible characters who've gone before us, we can learn to recognise His voice. The Other Side of the Conversation series is designed to take you step-by-step through the biblical teaching on hearing God's voice, as well as plenty of practical tips that you can apply in the context of your local church. We've worked really hard to create an excellent resource that has been used in churches all around the world and has the potential to change your life. The box set includes a documentary-style DVD with six 15-minute episodes, plus a guidebook for individual or small group use. You can buy it online from Curon Books in Australia, Manor in New Zealand, or at the godconversations.com store. Remember, the ability to hear God's voice is given to everyone who chooses to follow Jesus. It was never meant to be a one-way conversation. Well, the Lord's Prayer starts this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. It starts by reminding us of our relationship with God and who he is. Once we know who the person we're praying to is, we can come with our requests. So the prayer goes on. You may know the line, your kingdom come, your will be done. We've talked previously about the different ways of describing our relationship with God. The first part of the prayer uses the analogy of a parent to child. We say, our father. But here we see a bit of a different angle because we're now praying as co-workers or partners with God. We're joining with him to bring his kingdom from heaven to earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Many don't realise it, but Jesus was very clear that we live in two worlds. The natural world, this is the world we see tangibly all around us, but also a spiritual world that's unseen. And this part of the prayer is saying, God, your will is always perfectly done in heaven, in the spiritual realm, but it's not perfectly done on the natural world, on the earth. So we're believing that our prayers are able to bring his will from heaven to earth. God's calling us to get involved in his mission, his kingdom come. And what is his kingdom? Well, it's the reign and the presence of God. It's the place where God's will is done. It's where hope and joy and peace and truth and freedom reign. So this part of the prayer is very much related to seeing God in action. We're participating in his plan for the world and our prayers are designed to join with his. We're surrendering our lives to his plan and getting a sense of his heart. We're saying, God, I want to be involved. I want to be your hands and your feet to see your will done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what our prayer is all about. And it goes on to say, on earth as it is in heaven. You know, the sad truth is that God's will is not always done on earth. 
We see the suffering, don't we? The wars and the sickness and the accidents, the disease. This is not God's will. And that's why we pray. Now, some people get the wrong idea that everything that happens on earth is God's will. This prayer tells us it's otherwise. And it's not a case sera sera approach. It's not, well, God is in control, so we can't do anything about it. That kind of passivity is not the kind of approach Jesus was advocating. He's saying, by our prayer, we can change the world. I think of the Muslim philosophy by contrast. Islamic people believe that everything that happens on the earth is God's will. And sometimes I hear Christians saying similar things. You know, this can often be taken to the extreme. One of my favourite shows is Aircraft Investigations, where they look at what happens when planes crash. Now, that seems a bit of an unusual show that you would watch if you travel frequently. (laughs) But I kind of like it because I like to find out, well, what was the reason governments spend millions to try and investigate the cause of the crash so that it won't happen again? And I remember watching one of the shows and it was about a plane going down in a Muslim nation. And during the investigation, there was quite a bit of resistance to the inquiry. People didn't want to participate in finding out what went wrong. And the reason? because of the idea that everything that happens on earth is God's will. So for them, it it couldn't be about engine failure or pilot error. It was about God's will. They wanted to just leave it be. This prayer is saying the complete opposite. It is never God's will for pain and sin and error to reign. God's kingdom is of love joy, peace. Jesus came to overtake the kingdom of darkness, he said. He announced good news to those who were poor. He declared freedom to the prisoners. He came to lift up the oppressed. God's sovereignty doesn't mean that everything that happens is controlled by him. He is not a micromanager. He set up the world so that we were his ambassadors and we were given stewardship to govern the world on his behalf. Well, that means that we're subject to the repercussions of other people's free choices. But it also means that we can impact the world by working and praying so that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. One of the most powerful ways to do this is through our prayer. The book of Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 says that our struggle here on earth is not against flesh and blood. It's not against other people though it may seem so. But the truth is that there is a ruler in the heavenly realms. There are authorities and spiritual forces of evil who try to fight against God's will. God calls us to fight back, not through using physical weapons, not natural weapons, but through spiritual weapons, through prayer. What that means is that we should pray and we should intercede for others, our friends, our family, our leaders, our colleagues, our church. We should be praying that God's will will be done in their lives and through our communities, in our governments, in our nations, that God's kingdom will reign wherever we go, that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, a prayer that changes the world. Give us this day our daily bread. This is the prayer that asks God to provide for us. We come to him and ask him to give us what we need. It's described as our daily bread, the things that we need to sustain life. God is the ultimate source of creation. He's able to meet us at every point of need. So we need to come to him and ask 
and look to him as the provider, the one who's more than willing to help us. Why worry about your food? The clothes you wear, Jesus said. Your heavenly father clothes the lilies of the field and feeds the birds of the air. How much more will he provide for us? Yet this is the part of the prayer we also get mixed up the most. God is our provider, but at the same time, he's not a slot machine. Prayer is personal, not transactional. This part of the prayer comes just as the rest of it in the context of a relationship. We shouldn't treat God as a slot machine. Put your money in and get what you need out. You know how it feels when you have a friend wanting something from you, but it's only ever what they can get out of you. We hate that, don't we? The relationship doesn't last because we feel used. And there's a tendency that to do that same thing with God. We come to him when we need something, but there's no context for it. The other side of this is that the promise is for daily bread, not daily croissants. God promises to provide our needs, not necessarily our wants. Anyway, too many croissants is not a healthy way to live. I was devastated recently to find out how many calories there were in that one harmless looking croissant. So that's not to say that God doesn't delight in giving us good gifts. Occasionally, there may be a croissant as well as our daily bread. He loves to bless his children, both with what they need and sometimes with what they want. I remember many years ago when I left full-time work to go to Bible college and I argued with God for a while. I told him all the reasons why and and one of them was the financial side. I thought, God, I'm not going to be able to go on the holidays that I want to go to. There was a little town up in the mountains called Bright I used to love going to and I'm like, God, I'm not even going to have the money for those kind of special moments. And I remember praying about it and just saying it to God. And wouldn't you know it, a week later, I received a random letter from an old friend. He said, Tanya, I've heard you're going to Bible college and I've got some free accommodation to offer you up at this little mountain town called Bright. A beautiful answer to prayer. Not just daily needs, but now and then our wants. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 7, 11. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So God promises to give us our daily bread and sometimes to meet our wants as a father delights in giving good gifts. But we must always remember the one who gives those things to us. He wants us to ask for things in the context of relationship and keep those gifts in perspective. One of the most pivotal conversations I had with God was early on in my Christian journey. God spoke to me in a vision, a picture that formed in my mind. And I saw an image of a large Christmas tree. And underneath it was an array of beautifully wrapped gifts. Then I saw myself as a little girl. I ran up to the tree and started ripping open the presents. As I was doing that, I was aware that the Father God was sitting in a chair behind watching this scene and he was looking at the delight on my face as I opened the presents and he was waiting there for me, waiting for me to come and say thank you. But I never did. I never went back and acknowledged him as the one who'd given those gifts to me. You see, God wants to provide for us. He wants to give good things 
to us. But he also wants us to remember who the giver is, the God of provision, the source of all creation, the one who loves us, that we would not value those gifts above him. He's our provider today. He's the God who gives good things. He's our Father who is in heaven, who promises to give us our daily bread as we come to him. Well, we've been looking at this prayer line by line. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then we come to the last part of the prayer. I think it's possibly the most difficult. We see that prayer reveals who God is. It changes the world and allows for God's provision. But now we see that prayer is designed to change us. Think about these words in the next part of the prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Well, we see here that forgiveness becomes an important part of our prayers. It's almost a precondition. If we haven't forgiven someone, our prayers won't get through. But why is that? Well, there's a reason for it. Have you ever tried to communicate with someone you've wronged? The air is tense. The relationship is stilted. There's a sense of bad feeling. And the last thing you want to do is go and ask them a favour. Rather, you know you need to sort out that unresolved issue first. Well, we've said from the beginning that prayer must be understood in the context of relationship. So that's what it's like with God. It's not a ritual any more than sitting around the dinner table talking to our flatmate or our spouse might be. And that means that unresolved issues with God are going to impact on the effectiveness of our prayers. So how does it all work? Do we make a list of the things that we've done wrong and one by one confess them to God? We could be praying for a long time if that were to happen. No, that's not really how it works. In fact, that kind of approach can often weigh us down with guilt and shame, things that don't come from God. What we need to do is to allow the Holy Spirit to convict us of our wrong. That's one of his roles. He touches on our life, a sense of conviction that feels very different to the enemy's touch of condemnation. Romans chapter 8 verses 1 or 2 in the scriptures says that there's no condemnation for those who are in relationship with Jesus. He's set us free from the guilt of the law. Instead, the Holy Spirit in us convicts us, often gradually and in his own way. You get a sense of unresolved issues that you need to bring to God. You need to confess and ask for forgiveness. That's it. It's dealt with. If we confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive us. Well, that's what this line in the Lord's Prayer is all about. There is also one more element that goes with it. For the prayer goes on to say, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. So it's not just about our issues with God. It's about unresolved issues with other people. It's not just about the vertical relationship heavenward, but it's about the horizontal relationship earthward. We're called to love God but we're also called to love people. Jesus was very clear about the connection. This is what it means to be in relationship with God. So it becomes clear that as far as God is concerned, our relationship with other people also impacts on him and that affects our prayers. 
You can understand why, can't you? From God's perspective, he loves me, but he also loves others and he wants to see our relationships reconciled. At the very least, he doesn't want unforgiveness to hinder our progress. So when we come to pray, we need to face God honestly. We need to bring him the issues of our heart, confess our needs and ask for his help. Perhaps there's that person at work or or that grudge I have against a family member. Perhaps there's a disappointment or a betrayal. You see, prayer is not designed just to get things. It's designed to change us. It's what happens in relationships. They change us. When we're in relationship with God, relating to Him will always make us a better person. It has to. Otherwise, it's not really prayer. It's just a rote saying. The last part of the Lord's Prayer goes on to say, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. It's a prayer of consecration. Having confessed our weaknesses, our wrongdoing, our grudges, now we pray for the grace to live as God calls us to, to resist evil, to change and transform our behaviour. It's not really just about saying sorry, is it? Plenty of people say sorry and then they continue to keep doing the wrong thing. Sorry needs to turn into a change of behaviour and it's here that the Holy Spirit helps us to do that through prayer. So we pray for strength to fight temptation and trial. We pray for protection from the evil one. We commit ourselves to live for God every day. That's the power of prayer. It's the substance of our relationship. It's part of the package deal of what it means to be in relationship with God. Using the Lord's Prayer the people's prayer, as we've called it, we see that prayer reveals who God is. It calls us to change the world and ultimately it transforms our lives. Great to have you on the show today. Don't miss the next episode by subscribing on iTunes. Search for God Conversations with Tanya Harris and click subscribe. While you're there, leave us a review so others can learn to hear God's voice too. 